I've been told that the intro um, is too monotone and too boring, um, but we will we will come up with something new. My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand COVID-19 through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Starting and almost ending um, already with our housekeeping and our question for the week of this episode, we have a lot to say about this topic, which is why we decided to keep uh, to keep a lot of space for the actual episode itself. And with this, we're postponing um, the uh, question of the week until next week. I think that's fine with you as well, Boulder, right? Go for it. As always, starting with... What are the facts in two minutes? COVID-19 is a viral infection of the human body caused by a strain of the coronavirus. The first human cases of COVID-19 were identified in Wuhan, the People's Republic of China, in the final months of 2019. The World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak a public health emergency of international concern on the 30th of January 2020 and a pandemic on the 11th of March 2020. Images of overwhelmed hospitals in Wuhan, China, spread over the world, causing concerns in December, and similar images emerged in Italy and Spain in March of 2020. In December 19, China's government reacted with strict lockdown measures in and around Wuhan, bringing public life to a standstill. Around the days of, the, of March 14th, European governments reacted with similar lockdown measures of different intensities. During summer of 2020, European countries then opened up their societies, economies and borders once again, and what followed were one and a half years of restrictive measures. Examples of these include limiting gatherings, closing restaurants, mask mandates of different dimensions, local lockdowns of towns or cities, curfews and a variety of other measures that we are sure our listeners remember personally. The two main damages of COVID-19 are first, the number of deaths it has caused, and second, overwhelmed intensive care units and hospitals. So far, official statistics uh, state that 6.6 million people worldwide have died of COVID-19, and the the average age of people who have died in, for example, the United Kingdom was 80 for men and 82 years for women. In Southern European countries, this is even higher. Comparing this to the Spanish flu, where estimates vary, but at least somewhere around 50 million people died, roughly 2.7% of the 2 billion people on Earth at that time. The normal influenza, the normal flu, on average causes roughly 500,000 deaths per year. And with this, I think we can move on to the next category. What is the bubble? Um, Alder, this is a very intense topic. Um, luckily, we're in 2022 now, no longer in 2020. But, um, I mean, we're finally talking about it, right? It is great to be at the end of 2022 because if we had tried to do this uh, two years ago in the middle of the, if you like, the, the, the hype, the, the fear with respect to COVID, it would have been much harder for us to actually come across to our listeners. People were much more sensitive. People were much less willing to listen to a conversation about these topics, which are tricky and are obviously related to very controversial and uh, sensitive topics. Having said that, I still think now, almost November 2022, we still have to kind of signal um, our reasonable attitude towards these things. And what I mean with that is that 
over the past two and a half years, you very quickly, when you speak about COVID and you say something that goes a little bit against mainstream attitudes, you get put into the corner of the crazies of the Donald Trumps and the Bolsonaros, if you like. And so to avoid that, I think it's probably a good thing to first once again recognize, as you already did in the fact sheet, that um, over 5 million people, 6 million people died because of COVID, that uh, we are not in any way vaccine deniers. Please, people, take your vaccines. I myself had two as fast as I could and had the booster afterwards. Uh, Follow medical advice. All of that needs to be clarified so that nobody after this episode can accuse us of, you know, being science deniers in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and so usually uh, at the beginning of episodes, and especially at the beginning of what is the bubble, we discuss our own biases. Uh, with this topic, I think it's a bit difficult because um, I'm, I'm not sure where these could be from. So we thought it would be useful to at least discuss our personal and immediate reaction to COVID-19 in so the first three, four months. And we experienced it differently because I was still a student, uh, even a student of yours. Um, and, and I mean, for me personally, it was uh, December. Uh, I, I saw in the news, oh, there's something happening in China. Uh, what is this? Uh, this doesn't look too too good. But I never saw it as a threat of something that could, that well, I mean, that but that would influence my life the way it did in the in the past two years. For me, for me, the reaction, and it's always good to recognize when you're wrong about things, right? Um, uh, for me, the reaction early on was very much like, especially in January, when, when the press in Europe really started writing about it, but uh, the virus hadn't really arrived in Europe in any significant form yet. My reaction was, oh, here we go again. And that was based on previous experiences with the swine flu, with the avian flu. Uh, the swine flu, very serious problem especially for countries affected not so much in europe but uh where again maybe half a million people died because of the swine flu depending on estimates the but my reaction was very much one of politics one of international relations where we have these tendencies to hype things and become incredibly fearful then start behaving illogically i would even argue irresponsibly against something that is nowhere near as bad as we think it's going to be so in january i i very much remember being slightly annoyed with a good friend of mine who was saying oh yeah my parents have already uh, bought face masks and uh, i think this is going to be really bad and i said oh come on haven't you learned the lessons from swine flu calm down uh, maybe some people are going to be affected but as always the media is hyping this up to no extent obviously um, now we know two and a half years later that COVID had a much, much bigger impact, both in terms of deaths and people being ill, as well as politically on the world. See, and I think that this is very important to recognize overall for this podcast is that we're obviously not a medical podcast, but that we analyze the Western bubble um, and that we usually look at foreign policy or the politics level. Um Speaking about this, I mean, for me, I remember that, especially in the initial months, so uh, 1st January 2020, I was still in Spain, then I went back to Germany uh, because I was supposed to go on exchange in Israel in March 2020. Um, So I basically enjoyed months of freedom, you know, between semesters, um, having a lot of time, so reading a lot of the news, reading a lot about COVID, a lot lot about listening to the German health experts, to all of the experts they they had. And they all said, well, this is, I mean, this is not a super serious uh, 
infection, especially for young people. And that as a young person, that's what I cared about. So I remember I, I assessed the risk of COVID um, while listening to, to experts who told me about this. However, and this is uh, where the two of us at some point um, had, a, had a very, very intense disagreement because at this time we were writing a newsletter together. I personally did not see the role of governments as critical because, I mean, let's be honest, uh, two years ago, there wasn't so much critical thinking in my head. Um, so for me, I, I, I saw the risks of COVID, of, oh, their ICUs are overwhelmed, people are dying, something is happening, um, and governments need to take action. I remember this was very much my stance. Um, however, at this point, I didn't know to what extent governments would take actions. And here we had a disagreement. Yes, and to be honest, my personal path here was... One that went from what I just mentioned, from initially thinking, oh, this is going to be another swine flu case, which if you live in certain countries is a problem, but globally it's nowhere going to be near as much as a problem because this is what the media always does. And then swiftly it changed to a panic, not so much about COVID, but about how in February all of a sudden we leapt to the other side. The thing that you describe about the concern and the the idea the governments had had to do something about all of this. I went from, oh, in two months' time, everyone will have forgotten about this. It will just be a Wikipedia entry and nothing else, to, oh, this is actually a bigger medical problem than I thought. So I was wrong, but I mean, what do I know? Because obviously I'm not a medical expert. Uh, It's not going to be the swine flu. But, oh boy, are we going to go crazy now? And this is going to be really, really scary. And I I remember you and I indeed clashed uh, a few times on this topic. And I also... um, tortured my students in my courses, which were not in any way related to the medical side of COVID, but very much about the political side and the international reaction side to COVID, where I just ranted about how we were now going into some kind of form of panic that would do an awful lot of damage beyond anything we could imagine. Um, And that that led me to be for the one of the very first times out took me outside of my usual intellectual bubble right there were very few people who agreed with my assessment at the time right i even wrote some articles about that um so to to have proof and i am still very much happy at least that there i believe i was right i was wrong in the sense that covid wasn't going to be as bad of course covid had very serious impact but i was right in terms of the way that the world reacted to it and the way that we went completely overboard in doing more damage than actually solving anything. See, and the, these, I mean, these articles were exactly what we were clashing about uh, in the end because, and we're going to, to link these articles, I think, in the, in the post description below uh, because I think it's going to be very interesting for our listeners as well to, to read them. Um, but it was basically, I mean, one of them was named The Road to, Tol- to Totalitarianism. Um, and my big problem was here that, in, in from, from my point of view, you believe that governments are now taking power and they're going to control us um, and that they're taking too much power. And from my, and here I think it's very important to say, uh, I think this was a third year university student in his bachelor's degree perspective, this didn't make sense because to me, especially as a young person, government has never overreached in a way that I could get mad about or that I could even comprehend but again we're talking about a student here but I remember that there was that this was one of the big things that I could not cope with why would the government overreach government overreach has never been a thing in my life 
and this this was very difficult uh not just with respect to for example you uh, because you and i know each other well but in general it was very difficult to have this conversation with people because very quickly you then get put into the corner, sort of that other, you, you signal, oh, you're outside of the reasonable tribe because you're questioning COVID, which I wasn't. I'm not a medical expert. I never I never made any claims about knowing exactly how the virus would work, how many people would get infected. I had no clue. Uh, I'm happy to follow the medical world always in those things. But uh, you very quickly get put in the corner with groups that, for example, here in Spain, where our, we were living at the time, there were people on the political right saying, this is Prime Minister Sanchez, the government, now creating a socialist dictatorship in Spain. And of course, that was never the argument that I made. The argument was not that the current crop of politicians were using this to set up a dictatorship within our countries. And I had no doubt that at some point, two, three, four years later, everything would go back to reasonable normality. But what I did know was the lessons from the war on terror and the idea that slowly over time if you live in a society that is fearful that is panicked certain measures are going to be implemented and those are a another step towards weakening our democracy another step towards slowly taking down the institutions that we care so deeply about and that was my concern not that we would from now on forever live in a totalitarian regime but that we would cross certain lines that should never, never be crossed. And in fact, we did. Hmm. Because COVID, in the end, exposed the lack of respect we have for our institutions. That's right. We are no longer, I, th I believe, as sensitive to the importance of our basic foundational institutions and the red lines that those institutions should respect because we've been living for so long in liberal democracy in Western Europe or in North America that it seems like a given. And it seems as if whatever happens will be politically fine. You know, we might be worried about certain political movements, but overall the institutions are strong. And it, maybe a good parallel example here is uh, the way that if you in a society believe that ethically it is not right to have a death penalty. Most of uh, Western Europe believes that, according to opinion polls, and um, Western Europe does not do the West uh, do, does not do the death penalty, of course. Then that means that you can never ever cross that line. You reject the death penalty as institutionally wrong. You, as an as a society, you do not kill other human beings. And even then, when you have some horrible event like um, Norway where Breitvik uh, was responsible, if I recall correctly, the death of 70 people. Um, check me, but it's uh, something like it, that, 70 young it, people. It, it was 77, uh, 77. Of, which 60, of which 69 were children. Even if one person kills that many people, you still cannot impose the death penalty. Why not? Because you have decided as society that no matter what, there is a red line that you do not cross. And yet, after Breitvik committed his horrendous murder uh, there was a call for the death penalty and 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 here i i remember um hearing a very interesting talk from the at the time norwegian minister of justice um who who said exactly this is that yes i understand the pain and the fear the population has over this man and 
I, I as a human also understand that you would want to kill him. However, we as a society cannot do this because it would fundamentally undermine our society. That's, that's exactly what, what happens in those cases, that people become too either upset or too afraid and they sort of switch off their basic ethical compass and they forget who they are what their foundation is and they just want revenge or they just want action they want something to be done and that is a very human reaction it is something that you can see over and over again in society and this is exactly what happened with covid as well people were deeply deeply fearful and we forgot about the red lines that the society has to draw somewhere so in the fact sheet, I mentioned um, a few basic facts about COVID. Um, and I think that it is important for us to analyze these because uh, humans are not very good at statistics. I'm the first one to claim it about myself. Um, but I think that this was really exposed during COVID, especially how some numbers were taken out of context. Yeah, the, the problem is that there are lots of, there's always a lot of sensitivity the moment you talk about people being affected when people die, when people become ill, when people's lives are being destroyed. Your words are very quickly going to be misinterpreted. So, for example, if you look at the average age of people dying, it is a very different issue whether 6 million people die who on average are 80 years old or 82 years old or 6 million 10-year-olds would die. That when you point that out, that straight away then leads to a anti-reaction from people here to say, oh, you deny the, the right of old people to live their lives. And then, of course, the answer is no. I myself have a, an amazing mother who is 75 years old and fortunately still very healthy. And I deeply, deeply hope that she will live for another 20, 30 years at least, if not longer, as long as she's healthy and happy. And I've got other people in my close surroundings who are of similar age. Of course, I want them to live for a very long time. That is not the issue here. But so from a sociological perspective, when you're 80, you're more likely to already be um, more fragile, more vulnerable. And you're more likely to die from the flu. You're more likely to die from other things. And when something like COVID comes around then of course that is going to affect you more. That as a society, we just have to recognize and take action against, but not necessarily in the same way as we would when people who are 10 are dying in the millions, because that would be a radically different, different scenario. Pointing that out should be a reasonable, should lead to a reasonable conversation. Say, okay, so how do we balance that? But instead, straight away, you get once again put into that bubble of, oh, uh, how dare you disrespect my grandmother who died? You know, I, she was still alive and wonderful and happy. And now you act as if her death doesn't matter. No, it does, but not to the same extent as a 10-year-old dying. And this was symptomatic in a few I mean, debates out there in society about how to read certain numbers. I remember the, the most intense one uh, was, did, pi did people die off COVID or did they die with COVID? At least in Germany, I remember this very specifically, there was never a difference um, be between the two numbers. So you, so you never knew, okay, did this person now die because, because of COVID, because the virus was uh, simply weakening their body and at some point, um, yeah, they ended up dying. 
Or did you have uh, the virus going into an elderly home where people are already very fragile and weak and, well, I mean, very vulnerable to infections uh, anyways? And here, so you had this discussion, and then later on the discussion emerged about, so how many years of life were lost? Uh, which I think is, 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 I mean, is exactly what you pointed at. Let's say the average life expectancy is 85. And if an 80-year-old person dies, there are five years lost. Is it lost? If a 10-year-old child dies, then it's 70, 75 years lost. That's exactly the issue here that has also existed with all those other pandemics. Um, with That's one of the reasons why we don't know exactly how many people died in the Spanish flu. Um, it is completely clear that whether it is the flu or whether it's something more serious like COVID-19, people who are already physically vulnerable are uh, more likely to become very ill because of it and potentially die. And then it becomes much, much harder to actually put your finger on exactly on the reason. If someone is already in a hospice, is already, you know, so fragile that nobody thinks that they will live another year. And then COVID comes along and sort of gives the final, you know, the, the, the final blow to the body. Is that really COVID? Is that, is that it, it could have been anything else, right? Um, so, so here, it is, to, to remind the listeners of where we're going with this, it is not a matter of denying the importance of COVID. It is not a matter of denying the huge loss that we suffered through 6 million people and many dozens of millions of people more becoming very seriously ill because of this disease, because of this virus. The question is, to what extent is this an existential crisis for our society? To what extent should we actually take action against this? And that is a valid and important logical conversation to have. You've got a problem, a serious problem, people dying, ICUs being overflowing, which leads to all kinds of other moral issues, like the, 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 the usual concern that was expressed in March, April of 2020 was, how do doctor des, des, doctors decide who lives and who dies? Because it's absolutely true that the health systems weren't capable of dealing with that inflow of patients. That is a serious problem, but saying that you've got a serious problem is not the same as saying, okay, now anything goes to solve that problem, especially if anything goes means that you do a lot of damage in other ways. Yeah, and I think, that, well, this is exactly the conversation we want to have today, is, was this an essential threat to society? Well, no. Um, however, if it wasn't, then what actors, especially within the Western bubble, what did they do to cause to cause eventual damages and how was this the western bubble and uh, starting here um, and these are reoccurring actors uh, we've talked about them many times before so we're going to talk about the the media we're going to talk, talk about the population as a whole and then lastly we're going to talk about politicians and every single time the middle class is going to is going to play a big role but starting with the media here so we had a a bit of a hype moment in january of 2020 um where you had uh, a lot of articles. I mean, I remember this vividly saying, oh, there's a, a killer virus coming from China. And then questions being asked, uh, even in serious newspapers, will there be lockdowns here as well? Do we need lockdowns? When is this coming over here? Oh, yeah, it's not It's not only a question of, of uh, it's, it's no longer a question of if, but when. So you had the media going a bit into a hype moment in January, February. And I would say you can even extend this for a few more months. 
Right, and this is what I referred to before, that I, I thought I recognized the same sort of illogical hype initially that we've seen in previous situations like that. And then it turned into actually the media being confirmed in their hype because people started dying, ICU started overflowing, and that created this political space for governments and media and populations alike to basically panic and to only care about reducing COVID deaths. That was the one thing that mattered at that moment. Nothing else seemed to be be of concern. And you then mentioned the middle class. The middle class that's very clearly in this symbiotic relationship with the media, right? The middle class are the main readers of the media and uh, the media responds to that. And this middle class also started say, feeling threatened. They said, hang on, there were these concerns. These concerns are becoming real. My, I, know, I have an uncle who is very ill because of COVID. I had a party with that uncle last week. This might actually start affecting me personally very deeply. We need to take action. And they started tweeting out and on social media and elsewhere, all kinds of messaging like, stay inside, be careful. We are all in this together. And to me, that was... Well, if it hadn't been such a serious situation, it would have been hilarious because this was basically the media for the first, uh, sort of me, the middle class for the first time in a long time actually feeling threatened by something. Uh, the, the last time probably was terrorism, which was not in anywhere near as statistically relevant as, as COVID has been, where the, where the middle class essentially felt that something in their life could go horribly wrong. Whereas, of course, if you live in a working class environment, yeah, COVID was a problem, but there were so many other difficulties and challenges you have to deal with on a daily basis that that COVID was just an, an additional concern. But now all of a sudden the middle class felt the fear and therefore they demanded um, solidarity from the whole society. They demanded a society that would take this seriously because they couldn't escape from it in their comfortable lifestyles see and it was i mean so we obviously have the reporting news media but then and that's mostly consumed by the middle class and then the ones who think of them as very intellectual they will then consume satirical show, shows such as the daily show from the united states or stephen colbert's show and both of us uh, we are part of this well intellectual elite you know who believe that we're intelligent enough to understand uh, these satirical shows but both of us, independently of, of each other, started to dislike these shows. And I personally felt this most with The Daily Show at this time uh, by Trevor Noah, um, whom I absolutely loved and adored. I thought everything he did with The Daily Show was absolutely fantastic. And then suddenly you had lockdowns even or imposed in New York, where The Daily Show happens to be recorded. And suddenly he himself and his writers and his show went into this Stay at homeness is so serious. Everyone who's not taking this seriously is dumb. Yeah, and it's one thing to say that once. It's perfectly fine. You know, if you give commentary on society, sometimes you're going to say some things that uh, some people will disagree with. Other times you will say things that other people will disagree with. That is absolutely fine. The problem wasn't them once or twice saying, hey, COVID is serious. Please stay at home. COVID was serious. I mean, the question is to what extent, so how serious was it? But uh, no one can deny that COVID has been a serious problem for our world. The problem is the obsessive nature of their reporting. Uh, the obsessive f 
focus on not just COVID being a medical challenge and people um, dying because of COVID, but this idea that if you are a good human being, then you are in this with us fighting COVID to whatever extent necessary. And anyone who puts questions there like, okay, to where are the limits to how far we can fight COVID? What is a government allowed to do and not to do? Or anyone who said, well, okay, we've heard you. You've, you've done five episodes on COVID now. Can we now talk about something else again? Because there are more issues than COVID. Every year, 10 million people die from cancer. Can we talk about that? Then you were put in the corner of, oh, you're one of the crazies. You're one of the COVID deniers. You're a vaccine denier. You are whatever it is that you're, um, that, that is not us. We are the good guys. And anyone questioning our obsession with COVID is the bad guy. And, and this was also visible in a certain extent, to a certain extent, when it came to um, face masks, for example. Face masks became like a signal of saying, I put on a face mask, thereby I'm showing, even if the government doesn't mandate me yet to do it, but I put on a face mask to show how seriously I take all of this. And in the United States, that is still visible to a certain extent. A lot of people sort of make it a political statement now in November 2022 to put on a face mask just to signal to their surroundings that they are part of the group that understands and that cares about keeping people alive and that others who have been reluctant to wear face masks, somehow are morally reprehensible because they don't care about people dying. See, and I mean, on the face masks, by now it has been debunked in studies that these cloth face masks, or the surgical ones and not the FP2 ones, that they have no effect, uh, absolutely no effect on, on preventing the spread of COVID. Um, but so, so you had this sentiment in daily shows, so, or basically in satire shows, um, where anyone who wouldn't believe uh, in a sensible COVID uh, policy, well, in their their opinion, sensible, um, that was immediately a Donald Trump supporter or a Bolsonaro lover. However, and it's, it's uh, that's and such a human thing, right? To lash out someone disagrees, <laughs> and you just straight away put them into the extremist corner. See, but I I'm not as angry or as disappointed in uh, a satirist doing this. Because it's he doesn't have a journalistic duty. It is very much within within his his world to, to do this. Um, but when it comes to then the actual journalists who have received uh, an education in this and who should be thinking more critical, and I'm looking at the Guardian here, um, especially because that's the medium that you read and the two of us actually analyzed um, for for COVID. The Guardian went um, into the same direction. I have been a Guardian reader since my late teens. Uh, from the moment I could read English to a reasonable level, I started reading The Guardian and I've never stopped doing it. I think there have been very few days in my life as an adult person that I didn't open The Guardian at some point, the website at least. And in the past, I've even donated to them, something which I will not do again. Um, the mainstream media um, would not allow a serious conversation about to what extent do we deal with this medical emergency. So there is a serious medical problem. We can all agree on that. People are dying. ICUs are overflowing. And it's interesting, by the way, that psychologically, I feel to feel the need to repeat this in our episode a lot of times so that listeners can never accuse me of denying those facts. It's, it's painful almost, right? That you have to 
repeat that over and over again so that you can't be accused of being a, you know, a weirdo or a, a, a crazy person. All of us can agree on that. But then the question is, to what extent do we fight this? Are there limits to how far we can fight it? Are there potential downsides to fighting COVID? Are there side effects to fighting COVID that would be very damaging and hurtful? Can we have that conversation? And the Guardian would not allow it. And actually, we did a study at the time. We were very much, because I was concerned about the political impact of this. And I, you and me and others, we were with a group and we were studying the reporting of the Guardian, and there were there was a ratio of something like one to fifty in terms of for every fifty articles emphasizing the damage of COVID, only one would question something, and those that would question would be very very moderately questioning our reaction to COVID. Right? There was just no political space, and. I myself try to write to the Guardian, say, hey, I'm a professor of international relations, I've been a consultant for 20 years in international relations. I am concerned about certain consequences of our attitude towards COVID. Can we talk about this? My article wasn't, I mean, it wasn't even acknowledged. Now, that is in itself understandable because I've never written for the Guardian before. Fine. But some of my colleagues who have written for the Guardian and other such New York Times and other such uh, newspapers before also tried to do the same thing, shared my concerns, and they were flatly denied. There was just no space for about a year and a half. And even nowadays, that space is only marginally in existence. There was no serious space to have a critical conversation about to what extent do we fight COVID. Mm. I mean, we, we've analyzed this thoroughly in our media episode, not with regards to COVID, but with regards to the, the, me the problems of the media overall. This is episode 14. And there I brought up the, the problem with at least most journalists coming from an, from a rather privileged background with regards to the socioeconomic background. Because my, my number one criticism, and this came then in April of 2020, so it, it, took me, it did take me a while to get over my own personal fear of, is this virus going to come and kill me? Well, I mean, not for me, but again, for my immediate surroundings, especially for my, for my parents. Um, but then at some point I started thinking, wait a second, so we've been locked up here now, um, well, in our homes. Well, Germany never had this very strict lockdown where you couldn't leave your house. We could still leave our house, but everything else was closed. Um, but I was very comfortable because we have a nice house. Um, we are three people in a nice house. We could basically, you know, I mean, when people are together for a long time, at some point tensions started rising. For us, it wasn't a problem because we had a big, nice house. And then I started thinking about some of the friends from high school I've had where you have six, like, I mean, a family of six in, in a two-bedroom apartment, they must have <laughs> they must have gone absolutely crazy. And things like these, you know, where, okay, what do lower-income families do who maybe even depend on going out, on they need to go out for, for their job to, to survive for the family, or just for their sanity and mental health, or one of the very important points that we get taught from a very young age in, in, um, in school is that, Domestic violence is is best observed by teachers or by coaches in sports clubs. All of these mechanisms of society were suddenly gone. And the fears of domestic violence is going to rise, especially violence against women, that wasn't thoroughly addressed in the media at all, uh, especially not in the initial phase of lockdowns. In the initial phases, it just wasn't addressed. And why is this? This is, again, that bubble. And there's something very dark about this middle-class bubble. And I... 
we both live in that because we're both part of that middle class. This goes back to the same kind of attitudes when it comes to Trump supporters, for example. So, look, you and I agree that Trump wasn't a particularly good president. That seems to be a very disagreeable man. Um, but that is different from just portraying people who vote for him as either idiots or extremists or anything like that. And that's exactly what the mainstream media tends to do. And that pushes the problem to the to the more into the more extreme direction because people will feel unrecognized by the general media and they will be, form their own tribe. That middle class media bubble does not recognize the reasons and the problems that working classes or people living in extreme poverty, people without a job actually face. And as a result, they ridicule Trump supporters. Now, in the case of COVID, this middle-class bubble was completely uninterested in the fact that if you're working class or you're um, very poor, you have other concerns than COVID. You care much more about your children eating every day. You cannot afford to live in lockdown because you will lose your job. You will lose your source of income. You cannot tell your employer, I will work from home. You do not have the luxury of going into your garden and uh, enjoying the sun while you're doing lockdown because you don't have a garden. You live in a 40 square meter apartment with two or three teenage children who are miserable for all the times that uh, you're being told by the government to stay inside. That complete lack of recognition by the media and by these conversations about COVID towards them was incredibly sad to observe that these groups just didn't have a voice at the time and only slowly and certainly nowhere near to the extent that they should have even nowadays two and a half years later has this been recognized by the media yes a few articles i remember one article which was a good article coming out in el país if i remember this was april so this was already very late which discussed which interviewed a few people who lived in very small apartments and who had been basically psychologically tortured by the fact that they couldn't go outside. But that was months later. Nowhere was there a political conversation to be had about what are we actually doing? Is fighting COVID the only thing that matters? And is there no serious downside to what we're doing? And does that downside matter or not? Because the middle class, they weren't too concerned. Okay, they... They had to stay at home, which was mildly frustrating. They had to, uh, maybe they lost a bit of money on the stock market, which was mildly frustrating. Uh, maybe their children didn't have the education for a few months, which they could probably then solve by having online extra lessons. Who cares, right? See, this, I mean, you would think that they would have, that children would have less education. Um, after first lockdown, um, so when children back into school, teachers in Germany very quickly figured out that the kids from upper middle class families actually were better than before, that they had learned more because you have this very comfortable feeling of uh, working from home, you know, spending a lot of time with the family and then being very harsh on your children. Oh, you need to catch up on school. Here's your school work, 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 work. You have at least probably two, three computers, a tablet, an iPad, whatever, a phone to follow classes online. And then there were stories then about other families where there's maybe one phone 
that the, like one smartphone that has the capabilities to stream an online class in a in a low income family that belongs to the father that then the three children would need to share um so so that to me and and by now we're obviously already talking about the population i think i think we're no longer necessarily talking about the media um and that's something that made me that i was very frustrated about towards uh towards april of 2020 because it wasn't acknowledged at all you know it's that oh all the, they were well one last comment on the media there were so many articles about here's how to do lockdown here have a clear routine this is how to do it best this is what you can do go for a walk do this do that it was such a privileged view on such an such an extreme government measure and i think when we talk about the population we can conclude here and then move on to the to the politician side of things is that you have the middle class the upper middle class and the upper class being overly represented in this western bubble their concerns are being taken very seriously and that lower class doesn't i mean you have this attitude of always speaking for the lower class they need to be protected they're the most vulnerable to covid um but it's really just you know being scared and worried for themselves and completely disregarding the actual concerns of the lower class not understanding the realities of that lower class and what that happens is that that i mean lower class economically lower class right uh, so the working class uh, just to make sure that we avoid any moral judgment there uh, you've got a working class and large groups of the poorest in society who feel unrecognized in the narrative that is being provided to them. They feel under misunderstood, and that is completely correct. They are not being understood. And what then happens in our human psychology is that we turn into an anti-reaction. We, we go against that. And that leads to a lot of people becoming COVID deniers, believing that it's all a hoax, or believing that vaccines are bad for you because they believe they do not see a media and a middle class segment of the population that is connected to their reality and so then they become much more prone to take the extreme other side which is a simple reaction against bad conversations that are being held at the higher levels mm. And talking about the, the higher levels, um, here here the politicians, the thing that you pointed out uh, in the beginning of the of the pandemic uh, to me, which made, made made which made me think a lot, is this pandemic originated in China. Well, at, at least for all we know, it did. Um, it originated in China, and the first response that the world observed to COVID was the Chinese response, which was harsh lockdown measures, and then basically Western countries very quickly and very soon followed that reaction um, of imposing widespread lockdowns throughout the entire country. And something that you brought up, which which I think is just hilarious, um, when we talked about this episode uh, or, or planning this episode, um, what would have happened if this pandemic originated on a moose market in Sweden? So that's a joke partially inspired by the fact that Sweden was one of the countries that actually went against the grain a little bit in Europe. They they rejected this Chinese approach. They were, and portrayed, they were, they were portrayed as mass killers by exactly, the Exactly. The Guardian went in overdrive in portraying uh, them as somehow wanting to murder their elderly population. Even eugenics was brought up, which was very unpleasant. Uh, th- there was this huge reaction against Sweden for daring 
to question the Chinese approach, to daring to question lockdown, even though I think we can safely say that now, two and a half years later, they've been proven absolutely right in their approach, but that's for a different episode. And the only reason why we went into lockdown was because China seemed to effectively deal with it, efficiently deal with it, completely forgetting, and this goes to the damage for later, which we will discuss afterwards, forgetting that China is an authoritarian system and does not have the same red lines when it comes to government intervention that Western Europe or North America should have, where governments have limits that they do in, in Europe that they don't have in China. And Sweden was one of the few countries who actually openly recognized that and said, of course, we've got a problem here. Of course, COVID is an issue. But just copying a totalitarian authoritarian regime like the one from Beijing is not the way to go. We've got a bigger picture to respect. Mm. And one of the main tools that politicians used in their decision-making uh, were experts. Walder, you're an expert yourself for governments, right? Well, I, I had actually a number of conversations with people in governments who were closely talking about this. And because of my work, I'm often in contact, even though I don't work for the government, I often work with governments. And I had uh, various conversations, and one of them is gave me a quote that I will never forget, um, obviously, I cannot name the person, but the quote, I, I said, okay, you have insight into government thinking. You know how they reach the conclusion that lockdown is the way to go, despite the obvious costs associated with lockdown. How does that work? What is the cost-benefit analysis? That was my question. How do you calculate or balance the number of lives being saved through lockdown versus the economic, social, and psychological costs of lockdown. And the answer that I got, which I will never forget for the rest of my life because it's a huge indictment against government operations in these circumstances, is in a time of war, you do not look at Excel sheets. And that to me is such a horrifying quote you want the government to look at Excel sheets. So they believed that they were in a war against COVID, that the enemy was COVID, and any anything was legitimate to defeat the enemy named COVID. And they were not going to actually have any type of cost-benefit analysis. They were not going to specify the projected impact of lockdown. They were not going to specify the projected costs of lockdown. It didn't matter, the enemy called COVID-19 had to be defeated no matter what. And Excel sheets was for losers, were for, were, was for weak ones. And this is the bubble. This is the Western bubble, I think. This is, uh, it, will, it will never become clear. Um, and while basically already moving towards uh, the next category, uh, which, which, is the, which, which we'll talk, get to in, in one or two minutes, so you had experts uh, consulting the government, um, and those were mostly health experts. Uh, and we've seen this before with 9-11, right? When everyone, aka me studying international security, when it was all the security experts who were suddenly consulting the government, and now it's all the health experts. And those health experts, some of them at least, became celebrities. What governments did, and this is polit politically was convenient for them, of course, for uh, governments, 
I think in every European country, there might be one or two exceptions, but as far as I know, UK, Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, Germany, Spain, what governments did is they established committees of experts to advise them on how to react to COVID. Now, that in itself is great. Governments should listen to experts, no problem there. There were two problems with that. First, as you just said, those expert committees were made up for a large majority, in some cases completely, of medical experts or virologists because the enemy was COVID. So the thinking was, we need a medical response to this, which is hugely problematic because their advice contained advice that had huge economic, political, psychological, sociological consequences. So you had medical experts who knew everything about the virus called COVID, who knew everything about the the speed at which it could spread, possibly virologists at ways to contain the spread. Fine, no problem there. But then they would suggest something like lockdown or shutting down shops without any expertise on what is actually going to be the impact on the shopkeepers? What is going to be the impact on those parents who live with two teenagers in a 40 square meter apartment? They had no expertise on that. And for the governments, this was not a problem because they could also say, hey, we're just listening to the experts. We're following the experts, not recognizing that it was a very specific type of experts that were being followed. And secondly, it took away responsibility from those governments, right? Because it made it, they could take really drastic actions by just saying, hey, look, we're following the advice. Are you telling me that the experts aren't right? Who are you to tell me that? Are you an expert on viruses? Are you a medical expert? No? Okay, shut up then, because we're listening to the experts, which is politically very convenient, but takes away any responsibility for the long-term consequences of that. Yeah. And I think this is the moment when we have to move into the next category. What is the problem? So what is the problem here and what is the damage? I mean, the problem here is that there's no cost-benefit analysis, uh, as, as you previously said. And then the damages is that there was no evaluating of impact of measures. So, <clears throat> I mean, there are very low-cost uh, measures, such as, okay, putting on a mask is... Well, I mean, in the United States, one can argue this is a huge infringement of a personal right. I personally think that putting on a mask is less extreme than locking people up at home. Um, but there was no cost-benefit analysis. And as I stated earlier, we later found out that these cloth masks didn't do anything, yet everyone was had to wear them. And so something like this didn't happen and created a lot of damages. Yes, I, I think a reasonable conclusion from all of this is that, that, that there are there's a variety and, and, and there's a skill of impact of measures. And you're absolutely right, of course, to a face mask for most people, maybe some people have medical reasons why face masks are problematic, but for most people, wearing a face mask is a mild inconvenience. Um, it is not something that is in the same category as complete lockdown, of course. The, but the problem can be observed equally in the sense that outside of this simplistic vision of COVID needs to be defeated, we need to minimize at all costs anyone dying from COVID. We don't care about other deaths. We don't care about other things, but COVID needs to be defeated no matter what. And we will do anything possible. And if face masks only help like 1%, 
then then it is legitimate. If if lockdown only helps for 20%, then it's legitimate. Unless that is your approach to this, you need to recognize the, the importance of that cost-benefit analysis for both face masks as well as for lockdown and anything in between, right? Uh, we were not having a conversation and even governments weren't internally having this conversation as far as I can tell with relative confidence having this conversation about what is actually the genuine damage of lockdown uh, of uh, sorry of covid what is the nature of the deaths what is the nature of um the illness uh, what is the difference between as we mentioned before the 80 year olds and the 10 year olds dying and on the other hand how does wearing face masks actually have a negative impact on society now i don't think that face masks are anywhere near lockdown either but face masks do have an uncomfortable impact in the sense that uh, people find it harder to breathe people are more uncomfortable on public transport uh, people cannot see each other face to face which creates distance within society which means that everywhere around you it feels like you're threatened there were very clear negative consequences and they still are in places where you still have to wear face masks to wearing face masks not enormous not not you know not all to the extent of lockdown but it was there and then surely it is important for society and especially for governments and media to ask themselves how much do we actually solve by creating these problems these communication problems these psychological problems these mild health concerns about not being able to breathe properly what is the actual benefit of doing that and now we know from the long-term analysis, uh, including this huge German study that came out, what was it, six months ago or a year ago, um, uh, with, I think they, they followed 80,000 people in Germany. And we know that outside, wearing face masks has essentially no impact on spreading and the spreading of the virus. Inside it does, to a certain extent. I, I believe it was something like it, it reduces the likelihood of you receiving the virus with by 10% or spreading the virus by 10%, something like that. Not an enormous amount, but it helps a little bit. But outside, wearing a face mask has no statistical impact. And yet we're causing the problems related to face masks. Isn't that a cost-benefit analysis that any healthy society should be making? See, and I mean, it's uh, apart from all the uh, discomfort or whatever on, on face masks, um, what I think the real damage here was then the way that the police or the enforcement of wearing face masks. I mean, I can share the anecdote here where uh, September 2020, I was going on a run in Spain. And at that time, the mandate was that you had to wear masks outside, except when doing physical activities or when going for a run. Uh, so I was doing my, my usual route. And then the last 50 meters uh, in front of the door of, of my apartment, um, I, took the, I, I was not wearing a mask. I didn't have a mask with me because I was on a run. I was walking. So I'm walking the last 50 meters and that moment the police pull, uh, pulls up and stops me and starts questioning me and starts threatening, threatening me with a fine. And remember, the fine was, was expensive. I mean, so that, I think, is the real damage when it comes to the face masks, at least to society, is that you have the police controlling you for something that is scientifically not proven and not even helpful in any regard. However, it became, it became so essential to, to government policy. And there was no demand from the media, from the population, to, for the government to show the, the, the actual rational reasoning there. There was no 
pressure on governments at the time to actually prove that these very extreme measures or policemen coming up to you to demand that you put on a face mask, which is from a freedom perspective, a liberal perspective, is a big step. There was no pressure for the governments to actually show the statistical validity of this, just to actually prove the scientific accuracy of their claims. All they had to do was say, hey, this is an advice from medical experts. And you know what? If I'm a medical expert and my only, the only demand put on me is like reduce the virus, yeah, then I, I'm not concerned about political consequences. I'm not concerned about psychological consequences. I just want that virus to be stopped. So I'm going to advise the government to wear those face masks. But I do not, you know, I do not need to think about the other bits, right? So there was no pressure on governments to actually legitimize their their choices and we started now talking about face masks but of course then you when you take it 10 net notches up you get to lockdown and you have your example of a policeman telling you to wear a face mask i have my example when i was living in madrid where lockdown in european terms was as extreme as it gets spain had very extreme lockdown for six weeks we weren't allowed to go outside except to go to the supermarket. You weren't allowed to go for a walk. By the way, how about the health consequences of people not doing exercise? But that's you know part of that cost-benefit analysis that was never made. I walked to the supermarket to Lidl with a big Lidl bag straight towards the supermarket because I was allowed to do that, because I was allowed to get food for me and my family. A hundred meters in front of Lidl, I was stopped by military police in Spain, not police, military police, two young men who said, what are you doing out on the street here? And I was looking at my Lidl back and I was looking at the sign of the Lidl supermarket that we could see. And I was looking at them afterwards thinking with my thought, like, what do you think I'm doing? But of course, if military police stop you, you don't want to be petulant and you don't want to start an argument. And so I calmly had to explain that I was going to the supermarket, holding up my Lidl back, and um, that I was living in the neighborhood, that I hadn't gone to a supermarket further away than necessary. And eventually they let me go. That moment that happened to me and happened to countless others is goes against everything that a liberal society should stand for. Not just the police, but military police, which is huge. The military police should go nowhere near civilians. That's not their job. But the police, authorities, demanding from you where you're going while going on a walk, telling you that you have to be inside of your house, that you're not allowed to go outside of your house, is so completely inconsistent with any society calling itself free that it was to me astounding at the time, and it still is, that this was even possible. Now, it's another thing, if if there is a virus spreading, COVID-19, spreading around, and the government says, hey, people, could you please stay inside a little bit and try to stay away from parties because we have to, you know, we've got this problem, and, and, and otherwise you're contributing to the spreading of the virus, I would be the first to follow government advice. I, You know, if the government tells me, Look, please be a little bit careful. Don't go to parties too often. I'll be very, very happy to follow that advice. But the government denying me the right to step outside of my own house, to essentially locking me up, imprisoning me inside my apartment, is not consistent with a free society. And nobody 
can claim that in March 2020, Spain was a free liberal society. It wasn't. It was a government that had assumed political powers that they simply should never have allowed, uh, uh, should never have been allowed to assume. Unfortunately, if you pointed that out at the time, again, you were being put in the extreme right wing group tribe that somehow did not understand that viruses kill people. See, and here we're only talking about the institutional and societal damages. However, as when we're talking about lockdown in particular, there are consequences not only for, for institutions, but also for the psychological level. I mean, we've discussed this, what happened to children. Um, I don't know how locking children up uh, is going to it's going it's going to impact their development. Uh, we would need to to have, to have an expert on children here. Um, you have the educational perspective. Um, I mean, it just now the numbers in the United States came out that uh, well, education levels in the U.S. have been worse than ever before, and showing the impact of 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 the pandemic and lockdowns. The economic, which we haven't mentioned at all yet, because I mean, I I always think if you mention this first and it really becomes a cost benefit analysis human life versus uh, versus economic numbers but it has to be mentioned here um is that the the, the because those economic numbers are also human lives they are i mean the 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 incomes uh, destroyed i mean when we talk about supply chains when we talk about i mean uh, this was something that that i i with very little economic background I always question if you pump so much money in the market as right now and there's nothing being produced doesn't that lead at some point to inflation um, so, so I mean, right now it's it's difficult to see the effects of COVID on the economy because it's being mixed with the uh, well, the the kind of consequences of of the war in Ukraine, and then you have the then you have the political one. So there's so many difficult to measure costs that were not discussed, were not being taken into account at all. That's precisely the problem here. It is well, first of all, is the recognition of certain red lines that should never be crossed. And the moment you cross them, despite any cost, so you have a cost-benefit analysis, but even if that cost-benefit analysis go shows certain actions, those actions are still ruled by certain basic foundations, red lines, that a society cannot pass. And I cannot imagine any serious situation for a liberal democracy in which a government should ever be allowed to tell people, stay in your homes, except for a very short-term emergency, um, you know, where there's riots in the street and stability has to be created. But beyond that, you cannot force a population, you cannot imprison a population into their homes, whatever the cost-benefit analysis. And those red, red lines were completely crossed with COVID, which is a continuation of red, li red lines of liberal democracy that were crossed during the war on terror. So you see, step-by-step, step, governments are assuming powers that they should never be allowed to assume. And then the cost, actual cost-benefit analysis is so complex and has so many different aspects, the, the, all the aspects that you mentioned, that just having an approach of our only concern right now is to limit COVID is myopic, it is destructive, it leads to incredible hardships within your society, and it is not even very clear that they're gonna solve the problem to begin with. And, and you said within your society, and so far we've only focused about the Western bubble itself, and included in the damages and the problems has to be, because we also talk about foreign policy quite a lot, the consequences on the world outside Europe or outside your bubble, outside the United States. 
And not only uh, was then Europe using the example of a lockdown, which led to other countries using it because there was no other you know, alternative solution, there was no other uh, framework to, to tackle COVID, but it also led to so much economic damage. I mean, my the example that I always bring up is Bangladesh, where suddenly, I mean, criticizing fast fashion is, 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 is another episode, but so suddenly the European market and the international market uh, is no longer demanding clothes because everyone is at home and no longer shopping. So suddenly the, the, the women, because it was, it's usually women, producing clothes in Bangladesh were sent home unemployed and they don't have nice, generous government programs that say, you know what, you don't lay off your workers, we'll pay, we'll pay you the salaries. The incredible damages to, 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 to the developing world um, were not discussed and I don't think are being discussed right now, uh, even, even two and a half years after. Yes, there have been occasional reports by the United Nations, by the World Bank, and, and other organizations warning for this. There, have, there were even a few reports already in April of 2020 about this. Whatever you think about the measures that were t- taken against COVID, if you support those measures, then you also supported putting hundreds of millions of people in the developing world out of a job, out of a basic way living uh, condition you created a situation where hundreds of millions of people around the world in the developing in developing countries were all of a sudden no longer able to feed their children, no longer able to send their children to school. If you defend government measures, then you have to take responsibility for that. And the sad reality here is that the middle class that always goes on about, oh yeah, we have to provide foreign aid and development assistance and all that. They only do that because there's no cost involved in them. But when the cost is, hey, I feel threatened by a virus and, you know, bad luck for all those others across the world. I'm not caring. I don't care. You know, that is their problem. I need to defend myself about the virus. All their moral bravado goes out of the window. And all their all their talk about how it is important to uh, support the poor, whether it is within their own society or in other societies, is no longer relevant because they feel threatened. And what's worse, the moment you point out that there's a problem, then they put you into the corner of Trump-loving, vaccine-denying extremists because you don't recognize the importance of their surroundings being threatened by this virus. And with this moving on to the last category, what now? I think that this category, um, I mean, it's there obviously needs to be a, needs to be a conversation on, on the damages. But this is me seeing the situation for the first time, uh, saying seeing that society went into absolute overdrive. Um, there was uh, there were damages done to the rest of society to the rest of the world that were not being taken into account in short-term decision-making. And to, miss, to me, this was something new. Uh, to you, this was not something new, uh, because you uh, experienced the aftermath of uh, 9-11 and the war on terror, and you wrote a very nice article about this. So, Boulder, what is the future here? Um, are, have, has the bar been lowered to, for future rights to be taken away quicker? That is in, in exactly the concern for where our society is heading, where you see a very clear build-up of liberal society in the 20th century and then in the 21st century with the war on terror, with COVID and other less visible items, slowly us chiseling away at the foundations of our liberal society. 
no one in their right mind thought that or should think that European governments over the past two or three years have tried to establish a dictatorship or a totalitarian regime. That is not a problem. I don't believe that any of the politicians in charge had that in their minds. The problem is that by taking actions, by limiting rights during the war on terror and then limiting rights even further to the, uh, setting a precedent for a government locking up their own population, for a government imposing measures that they do not have to justify through cost-benefit analysis, that they can implement within an atmosphere of fear and panic, either with respect to terrorism or with respect to a deadly virus. We are on a path, and that's what I meant with the road to totalitarianism, the article you mentioned before, we are on a path that eventually leads to society no longer holding their liberal credentials to any, you know, no longer holding their liberal credentials up as something to respect and to work on and to strengthen. Instead, we are moving more and more away from the very foundations that the Enlightenment started all those hundreds of years ago, and we're moving towards a world where one day, the article I believe mentions 2035, but you know, it could be 2050, it doesn't matter. We are on a path where at some point, one day, there's gonna be a government that is no longer liberal and democratic. And we will have given them the tools to establish a non-liberal democratic government because we have already signaled to history that we are willing to implement lockdown without any significant justification. That we have been willing for government to assume powers that go against the very foundations of liberal Western society. And that is something that should concern all of us. And so this is another symptom of the Western bubble. Where our society is slowly decaying, where we're no longer connected to the foundations of what make our society potentially strong and great. And this happens within an atmosphere, a bubble of fear, a bubble of ignorance with respect to the political pillars that we are all depending on and an atmosphere of antagonism to those who question middle-class consensus and instead are being put into extremist corners simply for demanding a critical look at where we're going. See, to, to end this episode, I, I want to um, mention something uh, from, from basically the conversation we had at the beginning of 2020. Um, Again, when we basically clashed about COVID and where to take it, and you said one of these sentences which stuck with me, and which in the end convinced me to be a bit more critical of government action, um, when you said that it's very difficult to take uh, to to give powers back, is that powers you've once assumed to give them back as a as a government, and I think we've seen this with nine uh, eleven, and I think we've seen this with COVID, and I believe that this is a moment to end today's conversation on COVID nineteen. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western Bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you bring for us today? It feels that the only person 
that should be quoted right now is the great George Orwell, who I'm sure doesn't require any introduction. It is almost universally felt that when we call a country democratic, we are praising it. Consequently, the defenders of every kind of regime claim that it is a democracy and fear that they might have to stop using the word if it were tied down to any one meaning.